Clarity is kind of one of these weird things where there's certainly a lot of acousticians that probably wouldn't even include that on a list. I include it on my list only because it's the opposite of reverberance. So it's not purely orthogonal. It's like measuring how rich you are and then measuring how broke you are and then the next breath. So it's, um, so it's kind of measuring the same thing because generally, although there's some exceptions, which we could do a whole nother podcast on that, by the way, on the exceptions to this, but generally, if we have more reverberance, we have less clarity. And if we have less clarity, we have more reverberance and you know the two are inversely related. We'd like to thank the underwriter of today's episode, Certainteed Architectural, from economical acoustical panels and suspension systems to unique ceiling showpieces in metal, felt, fiberglass, and wood, Certainteed Architectural has the right solution for every space and every budget, all with the backing of design consultants, technical experts, and world-class customer support to help you unleash the creative potential of every project Certainteed Architectural will manage the details so you can focus on pushing the boundaries of ceiling and wall design. I'm Paul Makovsky, Editor-in-Chief at Architect Magazine. We invited two experts on sound to help us understand how to design the acoustics of a concert hall. Our first speaker is Michael Ehrman, a professor at Virginia Tech School of Architecture, where he teaches design studio, environmental building systems, and both teaches and researches architectural acoustics. He's also the author of the excellent award-winning book, Architectural Acoustics Illustrated, which translates the discipline of acoustics into the graphic language of architecture. Hello, Michael. Hello, Paul. Our second speaker is Steve Udolph, who is the National Sales Manager for Certainteed Architectural, covering a wide range of standard and custom product collections in felt, wood, metal, fiberglass, and more. Steve has spent his entire career in the interior specialties business, putting his dual degrees in marketing and management information systems to work in a field that thrives on designing, messaging, and technology. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right, Michael, good to see you again. Good to see you, Steve. Let's go through these talking points you know, when we're thinking about designing acoustics of a concert hall, obviously the first thing is spatial impression and the sense of being surrounded by the music. Can you comment on that, Michael? Sure. I mean, we're definitely starting with by far the most sophisticated, the one that's garnered the most attention in the last 20 years, uh, the one that's most difficult to uh, measure. And unlike our other, I don't know if we've had three or two other uh, of these series of podcasts on architectural acoustics, but you might remember me saying things like, you know, architects can do this. You don't really need acousticians. And it's true for things like classrooms and to some extent, you know, multifamily housing and hotels, dorms and that kind of thing. But now we're kind of in the world of concert halls and unamplified music performance. And in this world, it's very much a, an expert's game. And this is kind of in the most of this that we're going to talk about today falls in under the don't try this at home umbrella. But um, in, in spatial impression, it's best described in its null state. So where there's no spatial impression, it feels like the symphony is playing in another room and you're listening through a window. And where there is special spatial impression, it feels like you are being surrounded by the sound. You're being enveloped by the sound. And the sound is quite wide. It's a, you know, kind of a broad, wide orchestra that's playing together. And I'm just going to use the assumption that there's an orchestra, although of course it could be a quartet or it could, you know, we're talking about any kind of unamplified music performance, including 
and not limited to, you know, opera or acoustic guitar or something like that. But let's, for the sake of clarity, move on and say we're, we're talking about an orchestra. And if we're talking about spatial impression, the sense of being enveloped by the music, you almost kind of have to start with our biology because our ears are on the sides of our heads, not somewhere else. So reflections that come from the side are privileged in our brains and they, they help us understand that we're being surrounded by the music. Had our ears been on our, you know, our forehead and our chin, <laughs> um, then we may have a situation where sound reflections from the top and the bottom are privileged. But because they're privileged in, in our sense of envelopment and spaciousness, providing sound reflections from the side, which could be as simple as using sound reflective materials on the sidewalls, especially the sidewalls near the sending end of the room, uh, near the stage, those are where the, the side, those first order early reflections are going to come from the side. But also, of course, room geometry, where you're trying to make sure that the sound is reflecting off the side and hitting the listeners. Now, it turns out the types of halls that have the best kind of sense of envelopment, the best sense of uh, spatial impression are shoebox shaped halls. And they're called shoebox shaped halls because they look in both proportion and form like a shoebox. And so they're rectilinear. Those generally measure at having the most sound reflections coming from the side. And further, having balconies actually helps with bringing more reflections from the side. And that's somewhat counterintuitive, but what happens is sound as it's propagating out from the orchestra that would have otherwise kind of crept up the wall is going upward towards the ceiling and often does a double bounce on the underside of the balcony and then the sidewall and then back down to the listener or the sidewall and then the underside of the balcony and back down to the listener. And so the presence of balconies, the presence of sound reflective surfaces that are angled to redirect sound towards the listener, the form of a hall that generally is rectilinear. And finally, making sure that the audience and the orchestra are in the same geometric space. So if you have a small proscenium relative to the hall and you have kind of a, almost a separate looking room for the sending in for the orchestra, that is not conducive to allowing the listener to feel like they are, well, I mean, if it looks like it's in a separate room and plan or section or, or rendering, it's probably going to sound like it's in a separate room as well. Hey, Steve, do you have anything to add to that? I, I think for me, you know, most of my career, I've been spent reducing the reverberation in the space to clarify the sound. Um, and I think we're going to get to that here in a couple couple minutes. But anything that you put in there, any hard surface is going to bounce sound around that space. And, and it's how do you clarify that sound and, and how do you soften it so that you actually are hearing what's being produced at the front of the stage rather than the echo and hearing things a few times because that'll jumble up music pretty good. And it's amazing if you go to a outdoor venue and listen to music, it's always, always much more clear than it is inside a concert hall because there is no reverberation. You're getting the true sound. The key is to take that effect and be able to reproduce that indoors. And it's, it's very hard to do. That's interesting. When you talk about reverberance, I understand that as the sense of notes flowing into one another. Can you talk about that, Michael, in terms of the role? Sure. Yeah. Most, most acousticians, Steve, would probably push back on that because the, the goal, especially if, again, we're talking about unamplified music performance. This does not apply to amplified music performance. It does not apply to speech, either amplified or unamplified. But for unamplified music performance, generally, we're almost always trying to add more reverberance. And we're doing that so that because people generally prefer to hear the sound kind of 
blended, uh, where each each note is blended into the next at least somewhat. So we actually go out of our way to increase the reverberance typically in these concert halls. And the way we do that is, well, it's, it's actually not, in that sense, it's not that hard because of echo reasons. So let me back up and talk about echo. So echo and reverberance are different. Reverberance is a sense of sound lingering after it stops. So if you were in a room and you clapped and you were to listen, you would probably hear that clap linger for a, a moment, a beat. Um, as it kind of dies off. That's not an echo, that's reverberance. But if you were in a canyon and you clapped, you would likely hear an echo coming across the other, you know, from the other side of the canyon. And that's a separate, distinct sound repeating itself much louder than the kind of gradual decay. So we're going to separate out echo and reverberance. Now, because we don't want an echo ever, we need to limit the size of our rooms because echoes happen when strong reflections come late. And strong reflections come late if they've traveled a long distance but haven't hit many surfaces. So in the case of the canyon, it's traveled across to the other end of the canyon. It hasn't hit any surfaces. It hits the rock face of the canyon. And the geometry is such that it's perpendicular and it's just like billiard balls uh, bouncing off a rail. If you send a billiard ball right against the rail, it's gonna, you know, at a perpendicular angle, it's gonna come back to you and that's what happens. So. If we have a room that's too wide or too long, we are maybe cursing the room to have an echo. And so there's a limit to how wide the room can be. And there's a limit to how long the room can be. And also there are for other reasons, we don't want the room too long. We don't want to lose too much loudness as we get towards the back. We don't want to lose sight lines. And, and you know, at a certain point, it's very difficult to see. So we have a limit to the width of the room and we have a limit to the length. Now, reverberance itself is measured as uh, is a function of the volume of the room, not the how loud it is, not the kind of volume you find on a loudspeaker, but uh, the volume in terms of the cubic feet. So it's a function of the cubic feet in, or in the room and the inverse of the absorption in the room. So if you have a bunch of fluffy things in the room, it will reduce the reverberance. If you have a big room, it'll increase the reverberance. And so big rooms sound like big rooms and small rooms sound like small rooms. Well, if you have a limit to the width because of echo and you have a limit to the length because of echo and you have uh, generally with um, with rooms for unamplified music performance, you have maximized the amount of sound reflective surfaces as best you can. So everything's pretty much sound reflective and you still need more reverberance. In other words, you still want that sound to linger when you've clapped. Then really, there's only one thing to do. And uh, your savvy listeners will have figured it out by now, which is to raise the ceiling. That's why if you go in a concert hall, you will generally find uh, not just a tall ceiling, but a very tall ceiling, because we need to increase typically the amount of reverberance in a concert hall. It makes total sense to me. I mean, I, I was not thinking unamplified. I was going back to my uh, punk rock days, I, I guess. And, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but no, I, I fully agree. I mean, you know, echo will destroy a listener's experience right away. Um, reverberance can be controlled and it just depends on how you want to control it and what materials you want to use to control it and what you want to do with the space. Reverberance is a really fascinating kind of backstory. It goes back a little over 125 years. And so there was this guy, his name was Wallace Clement Sabin. He's the godfather of architectural acoustics and this is in the late, you know, late 1890s ish. And he was super smart. He was from Ohio. His mother was especially ambitious for her children. <laughs> and so um, as she put him into college early and he graduated from Ohio State at 18 and then went to graduate school at Harvard. And she wanted to 
uh, nurture him and his sister, who was at school at MIT in the 1890s. How many women were at MIT in the 1890s? And so she moved to Boston with them and nurtured them in Boston, left her husband to do so. And he went to Harvard and he got his master's degree or his graduate degree in physics. And he was so smart, they asked him to stay on the faculty. So he stayed on the faculty and he was studying electricity at the time. And the president of the university kind of put his arm around Sabin, who at the time was 27, and said, listen, we have a new building. It's called the Fogg Lecture Hall, F-O-G-G. And it sounds horrible. And it did. It was semicircular, both in plan and section. So, it had, you know, domes are really bad for acoustics. And it had a dome and concave curves are bad for acoustics. And it was curved in plan as well. And so sound would linger there audibly for 15 seconds. I'm sorry, five seconds after a syllable was made. And so you would hear 15 syllables before then, you know, the last 15 syllables would still be bouncing around while you're trying to speak on the next one. It was like talking in a racquetball court. And so people hated that room. And so the president of the university put his arms around Sabin and said, listen, what I'd like you to do is I would like you to figure out how to make this hall, the Fogg Lecture Hall, sound like Sanders Theater, which was a beloved theater. And Sabin said, okay, I don't know if he had a choice back then. Uh, academics have a little more freedom these days, but probably back then when the president of Harvard said that you need to do something, you probably did it. And I've heard that the president of Harvard was also his father-in-law, but I haven't been able to prove that in, in my research. But anyhow, which makes it even more complicated to say no. Anyhow, so what Sabin did is he would go in the middle of the night where he A, wouldn't disrupt classes, but B, classes wouldn't disrupt him, where it would be the quietest. And he would go into the fog, the, the crappy room, and he would, uh, using an organ pipe to excite the room acoustically he, and a stopwatch and his ears, he would just listen for, for until the sound would decay to a point where it wasn't audible. And he would, between midnight and 4 a.m., with his team of students, take cushions from the Sanders Theater, the good one, and he would put those cushions all over the wall so that he could see what the effect was of changing the materiality in the room on the decay of the sound in the room, what would later be called reverberation time, based on his research. At one point, he was doing this for a year, and he, it occurred to him when he looked at his data that his clothing had changed the, the measurements he was taking. In other words, the clothing he was wearing was affecting the measurements. So he trashed a year's worth of data and started again. Finally, after two years uh, total, the president said, come on, man, Wallace, we need you to give us something. And Wallace said, no, no, I need another year. And the president said, no, you got to give us something. And that was really kind of fortuitous, probably, because it forced young Wallace to sit down with the numbers. And when he went through it, he realized that there was actually quite an obvious pattern. And that's where he came up with what we now call the reverberation formula. And it's still pretty much used to this day. Actually, it is used to this day. And it's just what I was talking about before. It's that the reverberance, the amount of time it takes for sound to decay in a room, by some amount is a function of the volume of the room in cubic feet or cubic meters divided by the total absorption in the room. And the absorption can come in one of two ways, fuzzier material, materials that you think are absorptive generally are, or you can have more materials or you can have both more materials that are fuzzy. So if you have an empty room, if you've ever moved out of an apartment and been on the phone with someone and they say, where the hell are you? You sound like you're in a racquetball court. And that's basically because there's, you know, uh, a lot of the absorption, total absorption is gone. And in fact, the unit of absorption, even to this day, is, is called a Sabin, uh, named after Wallace. Wow, that's really fascinating. Steve, when you're trying to mitigate existing spaces, how do you approach that? Almost always, we're told 
as a product, you have to meet a certain NRC, right? All our products have an NRC and that NRC derives from savings. And in fact, some products such as baffles don't even have NRCs, right? They're only measured in savings because of the way they're tested. So almost always there is a NRC that has been dictated to us of this is what you need this product to measure or, or, or meet up to, whatever that number may be. That has basically already been determined by either the architect or the acoustical consultant or whoever it is that initially helped the architects write the spec. So what we do then is we determine what the best products are to get the absorption that's being required for the project. I hear when you're designing a space about this idea of warmth, and I think that connects somehow to hearing the low frequencies. What should we be thinking about that in terms of designing for warmth in a, an acoustic concert hall or somewhere else? Well, I'll get the actual design to Michael, but from a product standpoint, we have found softer materials absorb better in the low frequencies. So, for example, our metal curves are the exact opposite of our felt curves. We found that different materials really can make a difference on what you're absorbing and what frequencies you're absorbing. From a design point, I'll let Michael handle that. The, the, the concept of warmth. So we have to remember that, it, and I think architects often, myself included sometimes for a shortcut, will talk about two of the three dimensions of sound and that being sound energy, you know, how loud is it? And time, you know, so when we talked about reverberation time, when we were talking about it, we were using a shortcut. We were talking about the reverberation time, how long it takes for sound energy to decay by, in our case, 60 decibels in that, in that example. We were talking about the spatial envelopment, spatial impression, the idea that sound surrounds you. We were talking about uh, sound energy and, and geometry, where the reflections were coming from. But there's this other aspect as well which we kind of glossed over, but it's actually quite important. And that is things are happening at different frequencies. So a high pitch note may, uh, it'll take more or less the same path, more or less as a low frequency note, but the amount of absorption for a given surface, uh, including actually the, the moisture in the air at very high frequencies will vary across the frequency spectrum. So it's kind of a little bit of a lazy shortcut to do what I did before, which was say, oh, sound does this, sound does that. In reality, Sometimes high frequency sound does one thing and mid frequency sound is slightly different and low frequency sound is you know, much different and so forth. And so now when we're talking about warmth, we're talking about exactly uh, what Steve was talking about, which is that we have high frequency sound, mid frequency sound, low frequency sound nominally. In reality, as I speak in my voice, we have sound across the frequency spectrum. So we have all, you know, we have infinite number of different frequencies that my vocal cords are vibrating at uh, more than we could ever measure. But we, tend to kind of group the sound energy into what are called octaves. And octaves are generally described about their geometric center frequency. So 63 hertz, 125 hertz, uh, 250 hertz, 500 hertz, 1,000 hertz, 2,000 hertz, 4,000 hertz. And so what will happen is as sound reflects off of a surface, um, well, as before, I was kind of saying, oh, you know, if it's fuzzy, it reflect, it absorbs the sound energy. And if it's you know, if it's concrete or smooth concrete or, or marble or something like that, it's going to reflect off the surface. But in reality, for a lot of the materials we use, especially the, the lightweight materials we use today, the amount that reflects off of the surface is, may vary wildly across the frequency spectrum. So we may have a situation, it's actually pretty common to have a situation where 
something is fairly absorptive at low frequencies and fairly reflective at high frequencies. And that most commonly happens with the panelized construction we use today. So if we have gypsum board on studs, if we have wood floors over sleepers, if we have uh, gypsum board under joists, especially if we have lightweight gypsum board or a wide spacing of studs or one layer of thin gypsum board, the gypsum board itself will, will act as what's called a panel absorber. And the, uh, the panel absorber will absorb low frequency sound, but reflect high frequency sound. Now, what is low frequency sound and what is high frequency sound? Well, made in high frequency sound is generally speech. We can nominally say that high frequency sound are things like consonants. So shh, those kind of sounds and mid frequency sounds are vowels like O and E and ah. If you think about it, they are lower in tone. If you actually say them aloud in your car right now while you're driving. <laughs> um, but then uh, we can get lower still. And if we're talking about uh, music performance, unamplified in our case, but also if we're talking about amplified music performance as well, and those low frequency uh, sounds turn out to be quite important for how we appreciate the sound in a room. And so uh, insofar as lightweight materials generally do a poor job of reflecting low frequency sounds, and whereas we generally want more reflections of low frequency sounds in concert halls and, and spaces for unamplified music performance, and whereas modern construction generally has a lot of lightweight material, especially relative to historical you know, masonry construction, then we have a situation where if we're going to build a room like we typically build a room, which is with panelized lightweight materials like gypsum board, we're going to sacrifice low frequency reflections. Now, in general, is that a problem? No, not for most rooms, but for unamplified music performance, like a performance you know, auditorium in a, even a high school, we would prefer to have materials that reflect sound at lower frequencies. Now, also, large surfaces reflect low frequency sounds and small surfaces don't. And the best way I can explain that to you or to anyone is to think about, um, it's kind of a physics wavelength thing, but you can think about being at the beach, right? So a wave, the distance between the peaks of a wave is actually quite large compared to the width of your chest. So when a wave hits against your chest, it moves right around your chest when you're at the beach. But the length of the distance of a, of, of a wavelength between waves approaching a beach, if it hits a seawall, it will bounce smack off the seawall and the wave will reflect. That doesn't happen when it hits your chest. So there is a kind of a counterintuitive physics part of this where sounds are waves or they behave like waves. And so if we have low frequencies, which are long wavelengths, those low frequencies will tend to not see, I'm putting C in air quotes, will tend to not see small surfaces. And so if we want to reflect low, low frequencies, we need something that the long wavelength can see. So we need, if we're going to reflect low frequencies, we need massive materials. We need large surfaces. And especially if they're coming from the side. Again, there's always this premium on reflections that are coming from the side because they enter our ears at more or less a right angle. We'd like to thank the underwriter of today's episode, Certainteed Architectural, from economical acoustical panels and suspension systems to unique ceiling showpieces in metal, felt, fiberglass, and wood, Certainteed Architectural has the right solution for every space and every budget, all with the backing of design consultants, technical experts, and world-class customer support to help you unleash the creative potential of every project. Certainty Architectural will manage the details 
so you can focus on pushing the boundaries of ceiling and wall design. And now back to the show. You know, I hear about this idea of clarity. Uh, of course, if, if you have warmth and reverberance as issues to be designing around, what about clarity, the idea of hearing each note as distinct? Yeah, so clarity is kind of one of these weird things where there's certainly a lot of acousticians that probably wouldn't even include that on a list. Um, I include it on my list only because it's the opposite of reverberance. So it's not purely orthogonal. It's like measuring how rich you are and then measuring how broke you are and then the next breath. So it's, um, so it's kind of measuring the same thing because generally, although there's some exceptions, which we could do a whole nother podcast on that, by the way, on the exceptions to this. But generally, if we have more reverberance, we have less clarity. And if we have less clarity, we have more reverberance and, you know, the two are inversely related. So insofar as we want the sounds to kind of blend together uh, so that each note kind of blends into the next one, that's more reverberance, but less clarity. Insofar as we want to be able to hear each, each note is distinct, that's more clarity and less reverberance. Now, when do we want one versus the other? It kind of depends on the type of music we're listening to. So if there's Baroque music, some kind of Bach quartet or something like that, smaller symphonies, and earlier classical music from, you know, I don't know, like the 1500s, 1600s, then we want individual, we, we're, we're more interested in hearing each note individually because that's what they were made for. They were made for the dukes and the people who were hanging around the court of the king. These were kind of ballrooms, small ballrooms that these, you know, four instrumentalists would play in. And you want to hear each note individually. Conversely, if we were talking about something like Gregorian chants, which came about in the cathedrals of, of, of medieval Europe, each note of those were kind of made to blend into the others and then everything in between. So there's a little bit of a kind of a Goldilocks thing. And it does vary not just by type of music, but, uh, you know, kind of classical versus rock or something like that, but also by, you know, the size of the orchestra and the particular composer. And so often what we'll find is some measure of variable acoustics in a concert hall so that if they have a quartet playing Bach, they can often drop some drapes or, or, you know, slide across some curtains, especially on the back wall that will make it more clear and less reverberant. And then if we're playing, a, you know, 110 orchestra Mahler piece that demands that each note blends into the other, we'll retract those drapes and curtains, velour drapes and curtains, and we'll make the room uh, less clear and, and more reverberant. What about the sound strength? Obviously if we're having all this dampening or designing with warmth, reverberance and, the converse clarity. How do we think about sound strength, actually getting a sound across? Yeah, I mean, sound strength is kind of the physics of it. Generally, when we're talking about the perception of it, that we're talking about loudness, and they're really talking about more or less the same thing. The way that distance is, you know, maybe comparing distance to miles would be comparing loudness to strength. Concert goers are generally pretty greedy and justifiably so. They each want their share of the sound energy that the orchestra is, is creating. And so, generally, especially for bigger rooms, we're always trying to increase, almost always, trying to increase the sound strength because people generally prefer rooms where they can get a, you know, their share of the sound energy. Now, in rooms that are smaller than a thousand people, thousand seats, it is not totally uncommon to have rooms that have too much sound strength. But generally, we're trying to get more. And the way we do that is we do that with some of, you're going to see overlap in a lot of these in terms of how, you know, from an architectural point of view, what our strategies are. And so generally what we're trying to do is we're trying to 
reduce the amount of sound absorption in the room, which you also, you know, as we talked about, is also a good strategy for increasing the reverberance, something we also typically want. We want more early sound reflections, which is also something we want for, and especially those arriving laterally, which is also something we want for spatial impression. And we want shorter distances between the stage and the seats. Uh, so if we can bring the audience closer, it's one of the other things that balconies do is bring the audience closer in terms of mean distance from the source. So we want a maximum, you know, I don't know, maybe 110 feet would be kind of a long distance between the stage and the, anything more than that certainly would be less than optimal. And your listeners who are kind of up on this stuff and maybe architects done a, a story on it, but we just renovated, not, not we, me, me, but the world just renovated, um, uh, Lincoln, is it Lincoln Center? Uh, yeah, Lincoln Center. And that was plagued from the beginning with really crappy acoustics in large part because they kind of at the last minute said, we need more seats. And they just put way too many seats in that room. And so one of the things that the renovation did is it significantly reduced the amount, number of seats. And um, because one of the problems in that room was that there just wasn't enough loudness. Most of the absorption that happens in a room, most of the sound absorption that happens in a room happens on the audience plane. So it's you and me and our coats and the seats that we're sitting on and so forth. Uh, it wouldn't be unusual for, oh, I don't want to give a number anymore. I don't remember, but a lot of the, a lot of a significant portion of the total sound that's going to die in a room is going to die in that audience plane. And so if we have a bigger audience plane, not only are people farther from the source, but there's more bodies and more plush seats to absorb that sound to begin with. So it's really not, frankly, that hard to make a really good 400 person performance space. And it's really, really hard to make a good performance, maybe impossible <laughs> to make a good performance space that's you know bigger than, I don't know, 2,300, 2,400 people. There's just not enough energy to go around for everyone. But most of the big concert halls that we build are you know, something like 1,900, 2,200, something like that seats for a major city. And because the audience is so big and so far away on average and uh, such a big surface, you know, plane of absorption, loudness becomes super important. And so loudness with reverberance, with spatial impression, and with warmth, those are possibly, some researchers think, and I think they're probably right, the four most important qualities in a space like a concert hall or opera house for unamplified music performance. You know, we talked about the role balconies a little before, but what about background noise? How do you mitigate that? So that's, you know, that's actually super important as well. I used to work for a company that has since gotten bought up by Arup and they would make their concert halls. Um, whereas most people would shoot for what's called in noise criteria NC 20 or 15 or 25 for performance spaces. They would go to all the way to like, I think they called it NC one. It was something I think they made up, but it was the threshold of audibility. And so, because they believe that we really can't hear the fine grain of a performance if there's any background noise at all. And so there is quite a lot of effort that goes into keeping these rooms quiet. The most common source of noise won't surprise anyone. It's the air conditioning system. So one of the ways we do that typically is we'll have a plenum underneath the seats and we'll allow displacement ventilation because if we put fans and ducts uh, high up, we'd have to push the air so hard to get it down because the ceilings are high for all the reasons we mentioned before. 
And, and of course the lights are there. And so there's a lot of heat up there also that's kind of pushing, you know, there's a lot of warm air moving up. And so pushing the cold air down and it's typically air conditioning we're talking about for a full haul because the people add so many BTUs. And so we're adding all this heat and it's all moving up. And if we were to have to push the air down, it would just be so loud. So what we'll do is we'll dump air at a very low velocity underneath the audience plane. And then we'll allow that to kind of pressurize. And then, you know, every two seats or something like that, we'll have a register in the floor or we'll have a mushroom at the base of the seat that allows the air just to kind of come up and, and ooze out. So that's one of the ways we keep it quiet. The other way we keep it quiet, frankly, is we just put the mechanical space really far away from the hall. So these halls have typically about a third of their volume is the audience area. And about a third of their volume is the musician or performers area, you know, all the green rooms and the stage and all the dressing rooms and, and the storage rooms for the performances and stuff. And then about a third of the volume of the, of the building is going to square footage of the building is going to be for front of house functions, things like the lobby and, and, uh, and the uh, ticketing area. So insofar as, you know, the performance space itself, is just a third of the space. We have these other spaces that maybe can handle a little bit more noise. And so we'll put the mechanical systems kind of more towards those ends. And then we'll benefit from long duct runs going to the performance space. I had a situation, I can't remember if we talked about it before, but I don't think we did. I had a situation where we have a performance space on campus here that was built uh, 10 years ago. And it was built by a very noted acoustics firm and a very noted, did a good job and a very noted architecture firm that you guys have all heard of that did a good job until my university kind of squashed all their creativity. But I was on the committee to build that particular building. And as such, I got kind of access to the, you know, you know, 25% SD, 50% DD. Like I got access to the early stage design and I would go through it and then I would write it up and I'd say, listen, you don't want the bathrooms to be adjacent to the performance hall because if someone flushes, they might hear it. And even if you go through all the acrobatics to make sure that no one can hear it when someone flushes, when it opens, there will be a problem with the plumbing at some point in its life. And there's no reason to think that the plumbers who come to fix it are going to be aware of the importance of how to route pipes and stuff like that, how to mount toilets so that you don't hear the flushing. And I just kept sending that to them. Get the bathrooms off the common wall, a shared wall with the concert hall. Get the bathrooms off a shared wall with the concert hall. It becomes a pretty commonsensical space planning exercise. So they never did. And so um, uh, I would take my students when it was, under, it was under construction for years, and I would take my students to it. And both my design students, studio students, because I teach design studio, and my acoustics students, because I teach an acoustic class, and my building system students, which includes acoustics and, and lighting and other things. And we, I probably went 12 times, maybe more while I was under construction. And each time, I swear we spent like 25% of our entire tour talking about all the steps they were taking to make sure you couldn't hear the flushing in the concert hall, it was like this, like it was this giant effort from engineers and plumbers and concrete people. And everyone was just worried about this thing, which was completely avoidable at the beginning, completely avoidable. It could have been against any other wall. And then the hall opened and the acoustics firm was visiting. And this guy, Matt, who worked at the acoustics firm, but had not been there from the beginning. So didn't know that I had been writing all those emails saying, please just move it off the wall. So he gave a tour and he questions to the group to the group of students, these were acoustic students. And one of them said, yeah, is there anything you would do differently if you could do it again? And he thought about it for a second and Matt said, well, I think we probably wouldn't have put the bathrooms against the wall, the same wall as the concert hall, but who could have known about that from beforehand? <laughs> 
And I was biting my tongue so hard I was bleeding because, you know, on the Myers-Briggs kind of personality test, if there was a category called I told you so, that would be my category. Like I'm that guy who like really feels an urge to kind of correct. And I, I kept my mouth shut. Of course, now I'm kind of spilling it to everyone. But um, when you're talking about keeping things quiet, it really is at least at first approximation, as simple as keeping the noisy spaces far away from the quiet spaces. And these are really easy things to do at the beginning. And I think the reason they never moved them is because they didn't, they, they realized if moving the bathrooms would have required moving everything. And, you know, people were like, oh, I like where my office is. I'm going to have a view of this. Well, now the bathroom pushes this, which pushes that. And it, it makes people upset. Human beings are really funny like that. And so just kind of identifying which rooms are likely to create noise and which rooms need quiet and getting them the hell away from each other. That's a huge deal and completely under, underappreciated. And it's underappreciated how important the architect is in that, in that role. And really the acoustician is just there afterward. It's too late. Once you, once it's on paper, once you've showed the plans to the acoustician, it's too late. The architect's so unlikely to move anything. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest takeaway, right, is it's fairly easy to absorb sound. It's very hard to stop sound. And I think material wise, it's, it's, I think always the designer's challenge is where sound needs to be stopped. And in a lot of designs, it's very, very hard. It's hard to determine what materials to use during the design. And then of obviously placement of placement of different things like the bathrooms makes a big difference. It seems like the best concert halls were built over 125 years ago. What scientific field other than our architectural acoustics can say that? Has there actually been advances in, in the field of architectural acoustics? And what are you guys seeing? It's our great shame as a profession that, I mean, again, like you said, what other scientific field has really has its, its most revered work done in the late 1800s and early 1900s. So Arguably the four best, probably not that arguably, the four best concert halls in the world are in Vienna and Boston and maybe New York's Carnegie Hall and Amsterdam. And all those halls were built between nominally, you know, 1890 and 1915 or something. And so, you know, we've done all this research since and we can't kind of replicate. So what's going on there? And it's a whole bunch of things. Super interesting, super interesting. So some of them are just luck, right? So it just so happened when a giant timber was the only thing spanning the ceiling in a concert hall, its maximum happened to be about 80 feet. So the maximum width of the room was 80 feet back then. Well, it just so happens that 80 feet is a really good width uh, because any wider you start to either get echoes coming off the sidewalls and or you might get some of the sound energy coming from the side that I said was so important gets lost as it grazes over a really wide audience plane. And so that's number one, is that we made our concert halls wider at one point. And part of the reason we made them wider is they used to be funded by the king and the king didn't care about ticket sales. He wasn't trying to get his money back. He was trying to give himself political legitimacy by holding concerts for people. And so once the king was taken out and we wanted to sell more seats, we tried to make these rooms bigger. So we lost more of that sound energy because we had so many people. Then we decided that once the king wasn't involved, because the, there was a really big kind of um, upstairs, downstairs, uh, upper class, lower class kind of relationship between the, the main floor of a concert hall and the balconies. The balconies is where the aristocracy was and the, the, you know, the kind of commoners were down below. And so once we started adopting the, in my opinion, laudable thoughts about democracy and human rights, we said, we don't need balconies. That was kind of for the king. And so we took away all the balconies, but those are important for bringing people closer to the 
stage and bringing those side reflections. And then we said, well, maybe what we need is a fan shape because then we can bring more people in as close as possible. And a fan shape seems like a good idea. And it certainly is not a bad idea for speech. But for music, when it's a fan shape, if you think about it, in that billiard ball example that I talked about, where the, the angle of reflection is equal to the angle of incidence, the sound energy is going to graze off that fan. So instead of the sound being reflected to the middle, like might happen in a shoebox shaped hall, it's going to hit the sidewall and stay along the sidewall because it's grazing that sidewall. And so we made these fan shaped rooms. So less of the sound energy was reflected to the middle, especially from the sides. And then we got into lightweight building materials because they're cheaper. So we used to make everything out of masonry. <laughs> and then we started saying, well, what if we made it a lightweight material? So we have that. And finally, we have the fact that, frankly, the rooms that sounded like shit were not saved when they were bombed or burned. So it just so happens that the very best rooms, when there was a war and they were bombed out or there was a fire or uh, there was some kind of earthquake or something like that, the best rooms were reconstructed. And the worst rooms, the worst sounding rooms were allowed to, to be demolished, to be raised. And then, of course, this won't surprise anyone in the symphony world. There is no shortage of nostalgia uh, for the way things used to be. It's kind of like a movie review. I mean, it's somewhat subjective and, and the reviewers kind of listen to each other a little bit, I think. And so it could be that there are some some newer halls that and there certainly are some newer halls that, um, uh, you know, maybe in Lucerne or, or a few other places that that rival those old halls. Now, it is undeniable that the halls built between around 1930 and 1985 that suffered from all of these problems, the fan shape and the lack of balconies and the two big rooms and, and the lightweight building materials, those rooms are almost universally crappy. But by 1985, we had kind of figured out what are the characteristics of the old ones that made them so great? What is the physics behind it? And it is true that of the halls built today, almost all of them are better than the old ones in terms of old from the middle part of last century. But none of them are revered in the way that the best halls are from the late 1800s and early 1900s. And that's crazy and kind of shameful, <laughs> but it is what it is. I think that we have all the tools now and the ideas to really design the best concert hall. I think. You know, even though we can look to the past, it's always a challenge of an, a, you know, a designer to do the best that they can today. I'd like to thank both of you, Michael and Steve, for this talk. It was very informative. Thank you for listening and visit architectmagazine.com to see more of our coverage and to hear more from the Architect Podcast Network. Thank you. Thank you.